Well, we're going to pick up our study of Hebrews now. If you want to turn your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 4, we will finish chapter 4 today. So we're moving, we're moving along. We're getting through it. That's not bad pace, is it? We're coming up to chapter 5. Pretty good. <laughs> and I hope you're enjoying the study as well. And, um, you know, we've had a few, a few hard-hitting weeks, haven't we? The last few, few weeks, really, we've looked at a, a two-part warning. And uh, really, that began in the second half of chapter 3. Uh, the warning was, do not harden your hearts. You see it there in verse 8. Do not harden your hearts, as in the rebellion in the, the day of the, the trial in the wilderness. And the, really, the point was that a hard heart to the truth of the gospel will result in, in not being allowed to enter God's eternal rest. And the example was an Old Testament example of Israel. That uh, even the, the, the Jews that came out of Egypt, um, all of them died in the wilderness, save two, Joshua and Caleb. And the reason was they were disobedient. They were rebellious. They tested the Lord. They tried him. And so we were given the great example here. They were not allowed, we're told, to enter the rest. And for them, rest was going to be found in the land of Canaan, the promised land. And they never found that. It was the Children, it was the next generation that were taken in to the promised land, but that rebellious generation was not allowed in to the rest. <clears throat> but last week, we looked at the other side of that. Rather than another example of a disobedience, we received an admonition to enter the rest, that that's still available, that, that, that God has not closed the door to rest, but the warning was still there. Look back at verse 11 in chapter 4. Let us therefore be diligent to enter that rest, lest anyone fall according to the same example of disobedience. So there was a, an encouragement, an exhortation. Enter that rest. The door is open. There's a promise of rest that remains. Don't fall into the same example of disobedience. None of us are above that. Israel fell into that disobedience. And so it's, it, it ends with this whole uh, thought that, that if you are not striving in your mind and in your heart in terms of obedience to the Lord to enter that rest, if you are sort of hiding, uh, hiding underneath a veneer, a, a disguise, you're not fooling God. You can fool the pastor, you can fool the church, you can fool your family, you can fool friends, but you are not pulling one over on God. And we looked at that in verses 12 to 13 last week. For the word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit and of joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. And there's no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are naked and open to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. So that was a hard message. <laughs> it's a negative, sort of coming from the negative aspect of, of things. It warns of danger, and the gospel certainly has a negative side to that. It warns of the danger. Uh, even the, the very famous John 3, 16, that speaks of God's love, warns of danger. Have a look at it. It says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. In fact, it goes on to say, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that through the world he might be saved. That's great news. He who believes in him is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of 
God. There, in John 3, 16 through 18, there is the positive side. God loves us. There's everlasting life. But there's also the negative side there. And this is true of the message. The gospel does keep us from perishing. It does keep us from being condemned. But it also brings something, doesn't it? It brings everlasting life. It brings spiritual life. And we shouldn't just strive diligently, as we're told here, to enter his rest because of what will happen to us if we don't. That is not just the one-sided. You better do this or God's going to punch you in the nose. That is not the message. <laughs> there, there, there's always the positive side as well. And here, after two weeks of the negative, the author switches and goes, but what do you get when you enter that rest? See, we, we don't want to just do it because of, well, what will happen to us if we don't, but what will happen to us if we do? And in short here, we get Jesus. We get Jesus. And really, that's the message of the whole book of Hebrews, isn't it? Jesus is better. That's the title we put on the whole thing. He's just gone through to show that Jesus is better than, than anything that has been and anything that will be. If you have no other reason to be saved and you get Jesus and that is all you got, then that would be enough because he's infinitely better than anyone or anything. And so far, he's been making up a, a systematic argument, hasn't he? Because this is a Jewish audience that he's, it's called Hebrews. He's writing to the Jews. And many of them had, had left Judaism. They have come into Christianity. They had braced Christ, but boy, they were paying the price for it. You're ostracized from society. You're not allowed to go to any religious sites. They're not going to the temple. They're not going to the synagogue. Uh, No one's talking to them. That's a big price to pay. And so some of them are thinking, I don't know if I can hang with this anymore. I want to go back. And so the whole letter is written to say, listen, what are you going to go back to? Because Jesus is better than anything. So far, he's talked about Jesus being better than angels because Hebrew tradition was that Well, they sort of venerated the angels, didn't they? Worshipped angels. Angels were so holy and great. He's better than Moses. That was a big one because Moses is the great leader of the Jewish people. But Jesus was proven to be even better than him. And he's better than Joshua. But in this section, he maintains kind of in that same theme that Jesus is, is better than any high priest. Now, the reference to Jesus kind of having a priesthood has already been mentioned a few times in Hebrews. Uh, we saw in verse, uh, chapter 1, verse 3, that he himself purged our sins. Uh, in chapter 2, verse 17, he's a merciful and faithful high priest. And even recently in chapter 3, verse 1, he's the apostle and high priest of our confession. And later in Hebrews, chapters 7 through 9 are almost exclusively going to address Jesus' priesthood. But right here, right here in this little pocket, transition verses, we are given every reason to hold fast our confession of faith because Jesus is our great high priest. That's the title today. He's our great high priest. So we're just looking today at three verses that'll finish up chapter four. We're looking at verses 14 through 16. So look at it with me. Hebrews chapter four, verse 14. Seeing then that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Let's pray. God, we thank you so much for these beautiful words to us today, that Jesus is our great high priest, Lord. 
and that we can come to him for mercy, for grace, that he sympathizes with us. Lord, what wonderful words, Lord. I just pray as we begin to study this that your Holy Spirit would reveal truth to us, that these words were, would, would wrap themselves around our, our heart, that it would encourage us to continue the race of faith, to hold on to you dearly because we love you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, here we have our, our reasons for not abandoning our, our confession for holding the beginning of our confidence firm to the end. Several times these phrases have been used. And the first is this, Jesus is a divine high priest. Never has there been a divine high priest, but he's our divine high priest. And I'll show it to you here in verse 14. This is fascinating. Seeing then that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. Now, you got to remember this Jewish con- uh, congregation, they're suffering, they're thinking about renouncing their, their faith, and they're holding on to some of these things. What are they going to go back to? Well, they're going to go back to a system. They're going to go back to a system where they have a mediator, and that mediator is a priest, and he's a high priest, and they'll, they'll do the sacrifice of the animal for them on their behalf. But consider this first. He says, consider before you do that, consider Jesus. Consider him as a high priest. How could Jesus be the high priest, especially as the Son of God? He is a divine high priest. And evidence of that is given to us in a very interesting phrase. Did you see it there? That he has passed through the heavens. Now you have to kind of take you, we've got to take you back a bit to his ascension. When Jesus rose from the dead and and he appeared to his disciples, what happened after that? Where where did he go? Well, let me take you to Acts chapter 1, verses 9 to 11. This is Jesus after the resurrection, after he's been crucified, after he's rose from the dead, he's speaking to his disciples, and this is what happens. When he had spoken these things, while they watched, he was taken up, and a cloud received him out of their sight. And while they looked steadfastly toward heaven as he went up, behold, two men stood by them in white apparel, these are angels, who also said, men of Galilee, why do you stand gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will so come in like manner as you saw him go into heaven. Now, that, that, that passage there, verses 9 to 11, heaven is used four times in that verse. And all four uses of the word, they're all the same word. It's this word. It's uranos. Now, that word is used of multiple heavens. Now, you might be going, what are you talking about, multiple heavens? Well, the Jewish mind believed there to be three levels of heaven. Okay, the first level is, well, what the disciples, they looked up, they saw Jesus being received in a cloud. What is that? That's the sky. That's the atmosphere. That's the first level of heaven. The second level of heaven would be what we consider as sort of the starry heavens, the the outer space beyond the atmosphere. And then the third level of heaven would then be the abode of God, the heavenlies. That's where God Dwelt. So in the Jewish mind, this is, this is what is being said here. Jesus passed through the heavens as a high priest. He passed through the heavens. Now, this three levels of heaven actually comes out in Scripture. Paul refers to it in 2 Corinthians uh, 12. Look at it. 2 Corinthians 12, verses 2 to 4. He says, I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago, whether in the body I do not know or whether out of the body I do not know, God knows, such a one was caught up to the third heaven. You see that there? And I know such a man, whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows how he was caught up into paradise and heard inexpressible words, which it is not lawful for a man to utter. 
Now, Paul, we all know uh, at this point, is speaking about himself. Uh, He's just being, well, humble about it. I know a man 14 years earlier. Well, it was him 14 years earlier. This would have been some time before any of his missionary journeys. Paul was, we're told, caught up, harpazo. That's the same word in 1 Thessalonians 4 where we get the rapture from, okay? He was caught up. He was called into paradise. That's what Jesus spoke to the thief on the cross about. And he refers to it as the third heaven, the place of God's abode. So what I want to show you in our passage is that Jesus is ascending into heaven. And we see that the disciples note that he's being taken into that first heaven. A cloud is beginning to sort of receive him as he's going up and up. Well, that would be the atmosphere. And then Jesus would have passed into the second heaven, the outer space, and then into the third heaven, the heavenly dwelling, the place of God. Now, the Jews would understand this. This is not far-fetched for them, maybe for our audience, but for them, they were, okay, you're saying Jesus went to heaven. He passed through the heavens. But why is this important? Well, you have to understand the role of the high priest. Now, this is where it gets really, really uh, exciting. Remember the high priest's role. The, the role of the high priest is he's appointed by God as a mediator between God and men. He spoke to God on behalf of the people. The prophet did the opposite. The prophet spoke to the people on behalf of God, right? Thus says the Lord. Well, the priest did the opposite. You went to the priest and said, you know, uh, confess my sins to you. You take it to the Lord. Here's my bull. Let me sacrifice it. You take it to the Lord. So that was the role of the, the priest. But the high priest, the high priest had a special role. He had a special role on a special day, the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur. He would go into uh, the Holy of Holies of the tabernacle. He would sprinkle the blood of a goat on the mercy seat, which is the cover of the Ark of the Covenant. And he would do that to atone for the sins of the people. And he did that one day uh, a year. But before he could do any of that, he had to do things to prepare himself. He had to wash his body. He had to put on holy garments that they had made, and he had to sacrifice a bull for his own sin. So with the blood of the bull for his own sin, the blood of the goat for the sin of the people, the priest went before the presence of God. Now, to understand this, you need to look at a picture of the the tabernacle. I have one for you here, I think. Coming up there. All right, so this is just, just to give you a picture of what Israel was doing in the wilderness Remember, they were traveling and God was leading them. By day, a pillar of cloud went, and by night, a pillar of fire. And when that cloud stopped, that was God saying, this is where you're going to make camp. And they would make camp. Now, if you were a Levite, you were making a big camp because you were building that. All right? I don't think I want to be a Levite, but you were building the tabernacle. Can you think about that? They built that every single time they got to a destination. And so just take a look at it. That's what it looked like outside. You can see all the outlying uh, tents as well. And uh, the Bible is very descriptive about what tribes were on what side of the tabernacle. Not to discuss that today, but here you just see the tabernacle, the basic idea. You have an outer court. You see that? It goes all the way around. And only the priest could enter that outer court. And inside the outer court, that's where they would do some of the sacrifices uh, uh, and the the sacrificing of the bulls and and those things. Let me get this on here. Oh, don't stay, stay on it. All right. There, there you have like a, a burnt offering. That's where they would do that. And there you have a, a, a laver where they would wash and do the ceremonial washings. Well, what's, what's going on in there? What's inside that room? Well, let's give you a cutaway of it to show you. And also, while we're going to look at this, it'd be a good idea to turn to Leviticus 16. I did tell you that to read through Leviticus would be a good idea 
in preparation for Hebrews, and uh, we really haven't had to go too much to that point at this uh, so far. But now we now we are there. Leviticus 16 will be will be helpful as we're as we're looking at this because we'll walk through some of this. But here's just a cutaway of what was inside the actual uh, tabernacle. Okay, so here's the outer courtyard. You see at the top there. There's the entrance, and you got the burnt offering area. All right. So now you've got the holy place. This is the first part. There's two rooms inside. Boom, boom. All right, two rooms. This holy place, so it's the not the holy of holies or the holiest place, but it's the holy place. There's only one holy, okay? Um, but you got three things in there. You had the menorah or the candle candlestick. That's where the, the candles would go to light it. Then you had the table of the showbread, and then you had the altar of incense. Those three things were in that room. And then there's another entrance, a little veil right there. And that's separated from the Holy of Holies. And in that room was the Ark of the Covenant. Now, if you're in Leviticus, I just want to read to you from chapter 16, verse 2, real quick. It says, And the Lord said to Moses, Tell Aaron, now remember Aaron was of the priesthood, Tell Aaron your brother not to come at just any time into the holy place, inside the veil, before the mercy seat, which is on the Ark, lest he die. For I will appear in the cloud above the mercy seat. And that's really interesting. We're given just in that one verse sort of some of the the levels mentioned there. That Aaron would just come into a holy place, then he would come inside a veil, and then he would come before the mercy seat. And right there is where God would, well, he would appear. It says he will appear in the cloud. That's called the Shekinah glory. It's not God. It's God's glory. Uh, But it represents God's uh, presence. And that would be above the mercy seat behind the veil. Right there. Okay, now there are two entrances which he must pass, right? And you can see them in the actual tabernacle, and they're pink. Right here, that takes you into the holy place. And right here, that takes you into the holy holies. But we missed one, didn't we? There's an initial entrance right there. One, two, three. Three levels into the presence of God. And the priest would go through those three levels to reach the presence of God. And once he got there, look at chapter 16, look at verses 11 to 16. We're given a description of what he needed to do. Aaron shall bring the bull of the sin offering, which is for himself, and make atonement for himself and for his house, and he shall kill the bull as the sin offering, which is for himself. And then he shall take a censer full of burning coals of fire from the altar before the Lord, with his hands full of sweet incense, beaten fine, and bring it inside the veil. And he shall put the incense on the fire before the Lord, that the cloud of incense may cover the mercy seat that is on the testimony, lest he die. He shall take some of the blood of the bull and sprinkle it with his finger on the mercy seat on the east side. And before the mercy seat, he shall sprinkle some of the blood with his finger seven times. Then he shall kill the goat of the sin offering, which is for the people. Bring its blood inside the the, the veil. Do with that blood as he did with the blood of the bull. And sprinkle it on the mercy seat and before the mercy seat. So he shall make atonement for the holy place because of the uncleanness of the children of Israel and because of their transgressions for all their sins. And so he shall do for the tabernacle of meeting, which remains among them in the midst of their uncleanness. Well, that's a lot. And this is happening one day a year. Just skip to the end of chapter 16 to verse 34. This shall be an everlasting statute for you to make atonement for the children of Israel for all their sins once a year. And he did as the Lord commanded him. Once a year. 
Now, when he went in to do this, he didn't just mill about. You are going into the presence of God. God's glory would appear there. And so they went in, did their business, and got out. And it was a very scary thing. If they missed one thing, if they didn't put on the right attire, if they didn't wash themselves fully, they would die. They would drop into the Holy of Holies and die. And they would tie a rope around these high priests, and they'd yank them out because no one going, no one going in there to get them out. Because <laughs> you next. So they tied bells to the hem of their robes so they could hear the priests moving about saying, okay, he's still alive. We don't need to yank him yet. This is a serious thing. I'm glad it's only once a year because your knees would be knocking every time you'd go into the presence of God. All these levels were meant to make it very a very, very somber thing. But notice that he went in, he got his work done, and he left. He never sat down. In fact, no priest ever sat down. His work was never finished. But notice Jesus. Jesus, on the other hand, didn't pass through three levels of a man-made structure. This is man-made. It was given to them by God. It was God's uh, blueprints, if you will. But this is blueprints of a, of a spiritual or heavenly reality. This is to give them the idea of what it takes to approach God. You want to come to God? One, two, three. And only one guy can do that. And only one time a year. But Jesus, Jesus didn't go through some man-made entrance. He didn't pass through three doorways into a tabernacle. He passed through the three levels of heaven. Do you see what's happening here? You have to get into the mind of what was being communicated to the Jews. Jesus is a high priest because he went straight through to the heavens. He didn't just go to where the Shekinah glory of God dwells. He went to where God himself dwells in the heavens. He didn't just leave to go to God and do some business and return. He's there. Dwelling, And he, we're told that he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high back in chapter 1. Jesus sat down. Why? Because the work is finished. But the priest's work was never finished. They never sat down. So how could he remain there in that holy of holies in the presence of God? How could, how could Jesus do that? Look at John 17, 4 to 5. I'll put it up for you here. Jesus said these words, I have glorified you on the earth. I have finished the work which you have given me to do. And now, O Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. You see, Jesus had the glory with the Father. Jesus came from the heavens. He's just returning. He was there before the world was in the third heaven. He left that glory. We're told earlier that he was made a little lower than the angels. Do you remember that? That's us. He's made like men. We're little lower than the angels. He became a man. And the sacrifice of himself was the perfect atonement for the sins of men. And there would be no need of another sacrifice. The work was finished, as I mentioned earlier during communion. Hebrews 9.12 says this, Not with the blood of goats and calves, but with his own blood he entered the most holy place. That's the holiest of holies. And once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. Only once did he need to do that. And I think we'll look at that verse more closely on Good Friday, but you get the idea there. So this is why we should hold fast our confession to the Lord. That's what he says at the end of verse 14. Hold fast our confession. That, that word is actually a different word than we looked at earlier. We looked at it in chapter 3, verse 6, and in verse 14. That word was kateko, but this word is actually a different word. Let us hold fast is krateo, and it means to retain it. Don't discard it. Hold on to it. Our high priest didn't pass through the tabernacle or even the modern temple. He passed through the very 
heavens themselves. And only a divine king could do that, a divine priest. You won't find a better high priest. But Jesus is also a perfect high priest. Look at verse 15. For we do not, we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. You know, every priest that ever was was a sinner. Every priest that is today is a sinner. Um, that's why they had to offer the blood of bulls and goats and for themselves, for their family. Before they offered the blood of you know, a goat for the sins of the people, they had to do it for themselves. And they experienced weaknesses. They experienced temptation. And often they gave in to them. There have been some pretty rubbish priests. as a pretty rubbish ones in Scripture. Why? Because they're sinners. They are weak. They're human. But here's the fascinating thing. So was Jesus. Jesus came as a man. He came as a man. Remember back in chapter 2, verse 17, it says this, Therefore in all things he had to be made like his brethren, so that he could be a faithful, a merciful high priest. Jesus had to be a man. He's fully God, but he also had to be fully man. That idea was fought fought in the early church. In the early days of, of trying to understand the theology, um, many had to combat this idea that Jesus couldn't be fully man. Maybe he was just in the form of a man. Maybe it just seemed like he was a man. In fact, that's where docetism comes from because dokeo means to seem. He just seemed like he was a man. They believe that because, well, if he's heavenly, you can't be heavenly and then fleshly as well. You can't touch the flesh to the heavenly, to the supernatural because it'll corrupt it. So they just believe that flesh and physical matter would corrupt it. So he couldn't be that way. But listen, this is exactly what the scripture tells us. And, and the apostle John, this is what he's speaking against in 1 John 4, 3. In 1 John 4, 3, he says, every spirit that does not confess that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is not of God. And this is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you've heard was coming and is now already in the world. That is a Antichrist belief, a false belief, a belief that's meant to take you away from the true Christ. Listen, Christ came as a man. He was made a little lower than the angels. And we're told that he was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. This is so important. This is how we, he can identify with our weaknesses. And listen, it says yet without sin. The fact that Jesus never sinned is, is so well established in Scripture. He, he, never, he never sinned. We're told in 2 Corinthians 5, 21, for he made him who knew no sin, that's Jesus, to be sin for us. He, he had to become sin when? On the cross, when he took our sin. He made him to be sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Jesus took on our sin and we took on his righteousness, substitutionary atonement, amazing thing. But Jesus did not know sin. He didn't sin himself. In fact, 1 Peter 2.22, he's quoting from Isaiah 53. He said that he committed no sin, nor was deceit found in his mouth. And even Jesus himself said that he never sinned. John 8.46 which of you convicts me of sin? And if I tell the truth, why do you not believe me? They could not find him guilty of sin. Oh, they can find him guilty of man-made tradition. Oh, you healed a man on the Sabbath. But they could not find him guilty of sin. But this brings up an interesting point. Many have asked this question over the years. If Jesus never sinned, and in fact, it was not able to sin, and he wasn't, then how could any temptation really be effective? How could he really feel the force of temptation if he couldn't sin. I mean, obviously, if, you, if you're God and you come in the flesh and you can't sin, how can a temptation 
be real. But let me tell you, his temptations would have been worse because he can never seek the relief by gratifying them. See, you, you and I, we, we can give in to the sin, and then all the pain is over. The temptation is over. We've gratified the flesh. But Jesus never gave in. Hebrews 12, 3 to 4, gives us a picture of this. For consider him who endured such hostility from sinners against himself, lest you become weary and discouraged in your souls. You have not yet resisted to bloodshed, striving against sin. None of us have. He said, you didn't have to resist to the, the point where you were sweating drops of blood, even. Jesus did. Listen to how C.S. Lewis puts it. Brilliant guy. He says this, a silly idea is current that good people do not know what temptation means. This is an obvious lie. Only those who try to resist temptation know how strong it is. After all, you find out the strength of the German army by fighting against it, not by giving in. You find out the strength of a wind by trying to walk against it, not by lying down. A man who gives in to temptation after five minutes simply does not know what it would have been like an hour later. And that is why bad people, in one sense, know very little about badness. They've lived a sheltered life by always giving in to the bad. We never find out the strength of the evil impulse inside us until we try to fight it. And Christ, because he was the only man who never yielded to temptation, is also the only man who knows to the full what temptation means. Jesus suffered under temptation more than any of us have. Therefore, he can sympathize with our weaknesses. He doesn't have to sit back and try to imagine, hmm, I imagine what that would be like. He experienced it. And so you have a high priest that we can go to who, who sympathizes. He understands. He knows your weakness, and we can go to him. So he's a divine high priest. He's a perfect high priest, and also he's a gracious high priest. Look at verse 16. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. That word therefore is to draw us back to what he's just said. Because Jesus is a divine high priest, because he's a perfect high priest, we're exhorted then to come boldly to the throne of grace. What does that mean? Well, to put it into the words that have already been used, we get to pass through the heavens. That's what it means. We, we can go to the heavenly throne room of God. Go back to that um, view of the tabernacle we had, the overview uh, there. You just picture that, okay? Remember that, that picture there? That, this means you, in effect, can go there, straight to the throne room. That's, that's the presence of God. Remember in the Old Testament in the taber, tabernacle. That was, we looked at that equated to what the high priest did. And remember, the, only the high priest could do that. And only once he made atonement for his own sin, and only once a year. But we're told that we can go boldly into the holy of holies, right into his presence, and we don't have to be a high priest. <laughs> he came as the perfect and divine high priest, and he offered up the perfect sacrifice. And we're told that the veil was torn. That veil in that picture that separates the holy place from the most holy place, the holiest of holies, that veil was torn. When? When was that veil torn? When Jesus died on the cross. The moment at his death, supernaturally, no one went in there and tore it. Why would they do that? It was torn, not in the tabernacle, but in the temple. So that veil, that veil's gone. The last thing that happened that Jesus did, his last work before giving up the ghost, was tearing that away. Why? So you and I have access. Unlimited access. Mark 15, 37 
tells us this. Uh, both Matthew and Mark and Luke all record the tearing of the temple, but I'll just give you Mark. Jesus cried out with a loud voice and breathed his last, and then the veil of the temple was torn from top to bottom. Not bottom to top, top to bottom. We can come into the Holy of Holies. We don't need to do anything else. Access is granted to you. A parallel verse is actually found in chapter 10 of Hebrews, if you want to peek at that. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 19. Therefore, brethren, having boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus. There it is referring to the tabernacle or the sanctuary. You can boldly come into that holy place because of the blood of of Jesus. We don't need to now, you know, build ourselves a tabernacle. You know, we're, we're trying to get it church building. We're not going to build a, I kind of joked, hey, we should, there's our model for a church building. We don't need to do that. We don't need a temple. We don't need a holy of holies. We don't need any of that. Why? We're told that those things are a shadow. They're a copy of the things to come. They're a copy of heavenly realities. So when the reality of Christ has come, why do we need the shadow? We don't go to the copy. We don't need to. We're told that we can go straight to the throne. And I, just to give you a picture of what that means, can I take you to Revelation 4? We can look at the throne. I love looking at the throne room of God. Revelation 4, we get a, a view, don't we? John is taken into the throne room of God to show us what you could expect if you were to approach this throne. And just look at the first five verses here, just to get this picture. After these things, I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven, And the first voice which I heard was like a trumpet speaking with me, saying, Come up here, and I will show you things which must take place after this. Immediately I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne set in heaven, and one sat on the throne. And he who sat there was like a jasper and a sardius stone in appearance. And there was a rainbow around the throne in appearance like an emerald. Around the throne were twenty-four thrones, and on the thrones I saw twenty-four elders sitting clothed in white robes, and they had crowns of gold on their heads. And from the throne proceeded lightnings, thunderings, and voices. Seven lamps of fire were burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. That is quite a picture, isn't it? Wouldn't you be intimidated to walk into that throne room, thunderings, lightnings, loud voices, fire, all that's going on? Sounds like the Wizard of Oz or something. But you you would not want to enter. But what are we told in Hebrews? We're told that we can enter boldly, boldly, not just that we can enter, but that we can go boldly. And that word, we actually looked back at it in chapter 3, verse 6. There it's translated confidence. Remember that word there, chapter 3, verse 6? Boldly as peresia. It means free and fearless confidence, cheerful courage, boldness, assurance, meaning this, we can confidently come, we can confidently approach God's throne. We don't have to have any fear at all. Another parallel verse is Hebrews 10, 22. Just to read that one really quickly. Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. You see, we can, we can come with full assurance that we'll be accepted. We can come with boldness. We can come with confidence. Why? Because it's a throne of grace, we're told. Now, this is so important. The throne is not a throne of judgment here. The throne is not a throne of justice here. The throne, because there's a promise of rest that can be entered, is a throne of grace. Because we're in the new covenant. 
But can I tell you, Isaiah saw the throne of God. It was a different looking throne. Let me give you a picture of that. Isaiah saw this in his vision. This is in the Old Testament. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above it stood seraphim. Each one had six wings. With two he covered his face. With two he covered his feet. And with two he flew. And one cried to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the posts of the door were shaken by the voice of him who cried out. And the house was filled with smoke. So I said, Woe is me, for I am undone. Because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Now listen, he saw the throne, but he had a different reaction. He said, I am undone. Why was Isaiah undone there? I mean, he took in the scene, and then he saw the King. He saw the Lord of hosts. He heard, holy, holy, holy. He saw the holy God. And when he saw the holiness of God... His sin was immediately obvious to him. You see, there was no argument. And you go, okay, I see you're pretty holy, God, but I'm pretty... He immediately said, I'm undone. I think bad things. I say bad things. I'm undone. I'm not holy. But see, we don't do that. We compare our goodness to the most wretched, vile people on the planet. And we say, we're doing pretty good. I'm doing pretty good. I'm, I'm a good person when I compare myself to him or her. But can I tell you, have a look at God. Or better yet, have a look at yourself the way God sees you. You know, he doesn't see you a holy, perfect person. Listen to what A.W. Tozer says about Isaiah's reaction. Isaiah's reaction when he was confronted with the holiness of God. He says that it expresses the feeling of every man who has discovered himself under his disguises. And has been confronted with an inward sight of the holy whiteness that is God. Until we have seen ourselves as God sees us, we are not likely to be much disturbed over conditions around us as long as they do not get so far out of hand as to threaten our our comfortable way of life. We haven't learned to live with unholiness. Oh, sorry, we have learned to live with unholiness, and we've come to look upon it as the natural and expected thing. People just go, that's the way it is, and that's okay. And so that's what's so easy, particularly in our world today, to look around and say, I'm doing pretty good. So Isaiah saw that throne, and he saw the holiness, and he said, I'm undone. But listen, that's not the throne that we're told to come to. God's judgment, that's been propitiated. Remember that? God's justice satisfied. His throne is now a throne of grace. It's a throne of grace. Listen, it won't always be that way, because you go back to the throne of Revelation, what's going to come out of that throne following that? Some judgment. But there's time right now. There's grace. It's been turned from that throne of judgment into a throne of grace. Why? Because of the work of our great high priest. And people all over the world, they're looking for a way to God, aren't they? They're looking for a way. They've invented all kinds of ways to, to God. They many paths, right? Many religions, they all lead to the same, same God. It just simply cannot be. You see, we live in a box. We said this before. We live in a box. We're constrained by time and space, and it's all within the natural realm. We cannot get to the supernatural. Man cannot do that. Lots of people said they could do it. No one can do that. What did chapter one say? God needed to speak. You want to know about God? You want to know that God was there? God had to speak. And we're told God spoke. And likewise, if you want to get to God, well, God must open the door. God must be the one to pave the way. We need a pioneer to blaze the trail. Hmm. We need a captain to chart the course. Did we talk about something like that? Jesus is the captain 
of our salvation. He's, we need a high priest who has passed through the heavens. Only Jesus has done those things. And so see, grace is offered to the whole world, and it comes right from God's throne. And it's only accessible through the high priest, Jesus Christ. And if you come to that, you'll find that grace. You know what grace is? It's, it's undeserved merit. It's undeserved favor. That is, grace is getting something that you don't deserve. What do we not deserve? Well, gosh, forgiveness, peace with God, eternal life. That's grace. I get all those things. But we're also told in our passage here that we will also get mercy, that we may obtain mercy. You know, mercy is not the same as grace. Mercy is something different. Mercy is not getting what you do deserve. What do I deserve? Judgment. I deserve to be separated from God. I deserve, well, death. The wages of sin is death, we're told. But here we get both. You get what you don't deserve. You get grace. You get forgiveness. And you get mercy. You you don't get the judgment. That's only available at the throne room of of grace. And it's today. (laughs) Remember how we've been talking about today. Today is the day of salvation. You can go to that throne room of grace. Don't wait till tomorrow. Tomorrow will be too late. But I want to point out one other thing. There's something else at this throne. It says, also, you will find grace to help in time of need. Now, the word grace there, it's the same word for grace, but this is not saving grace. Clearly, it's a helping grace. We're told it's a grace to help. That's what it is. And there's two key words that help us with this, and the one is help. <laughs> the word help there is boethia. It's aid. But this word is only used one other place in the New Testament, and it especially speaks of a rope or a chain for frapping a vessel, un- undergirding a vessel, and that happened in Acts twenty-seven seventeen when they had to r- run ropes and chains underneath the vessel to keep it from breaking apart in the storm off of Crete. That was the word used there. It was to undergird it. So this is an undergirding, helping grace. It's a grace to help us in time of need. And that's the other word. Time of need is one word in the Greek, eukaryos seasonable, timely, opportune. This is also only used one other place in the New Testament. It's used when, on the day when Herod beheaded John the Baptist because it was an opportune day for that. This is for an opportune time, for a seasonable time, grace in time of need. When is that? When do we need that grace? Well, remember, Jesus is a high priest that can sympathize with our weakness, who was in all points tempted as We are. It's grace that comes to us when we confidently and trustingly request it in those times of weaknesses. We go to him and say, I need grace to get through this. It's grace given to us for those times. 1 Corinthians 10, 13. No temptation has overtaken you except such as is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not let you allow allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able. But with the temptation will also make the way of escape that you may be able to bear it. The one who was tempted yet without sin here is the only one who can provide the grace to get through it, which is the way of escape. Escape is not to, 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 to leave it. We don't escape temptation by being removed uh, from it. We escape it by using the helping grace. Why? That you may be able to bear it, it says. We can bear it like Christ did. Jesus didn't escape the temptation. He bore it, and we too can as well. Don't we have a wonderful Savior? <laughs> As the only divine priest, we have access to God himself. We don't need to go through any other earthly man-made channels to try and reach God. We can't. Jesus passed through the heavens. 
And as the only perfect priest, he was the perfect sacrifice, and there need not be any further sacrifices made. And in addition, he perfectly resisted temptation. He can help us through all the trials and the temptations of this world. So why should you hold fast to Jesus? Well, who else would you hold fast to? Is there anybody else? There is none. We have a great high priest, and his name is Jesus. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for your word to us today. We thank you for our great high priest, the priest who passed through the heavens, Lord. We understand that for a time in that old covenant, in that old testament, Lord, we, we needed the priests, we needed mediators, but that, that was temporary until the perfect priest could come. And now that he's come, that veil is torn in two from top to bottom, and we have access to the throne of grace. That access comes to us through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Thank you for the reminder today, Lord, of what we get from salvation. We get you. We get to come into the presence of God. We get to come into the presence of our high priest, Jesus Christ. Yes, we avoid uh, the judgment. We avoid those things. That is certainly one side of it, but may we also be encouraged to embrace the things that we do get. Forgiveness, peace with God, purpose in life, true and lasting hope. Jesus is our blessed hope. Oh, Lord, help us to just embrace these things, to cherish these things in our hearts, to really understand these things. These are the things that will encourage us to hold fast our confession, to never turn away from you. We love you. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.